From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees whose agencies canceled their leave because of the coronavirus won't lose days they have to carry over to next year, according to a new rule from the Office of Personnel Management. The rule says agency heads will decide which employees were essential during the pandemic, so they're able to carry over more than 30 days of leave. GovExec reports the rule will apply to uh, future national emergencies, too, so OPM won't have to publish a new rule every time. The Defense Department needs more time to award the JEDI contract. A court filing Monday says the department expects to complete a reevaluation process by early September. NextGov reports Pentagon CIO Dana Deasy said recently the end of August was his target to release the award. The Federal Chief Information Officers Council has a new guide on using technology business management. The guide's called Meeting IT Priorities with TBM. Federal News Network reports the guide instructs users on applying TBM to FATARA, agency IT strategic plans, and other efforts. Agency heads will assess the hiring practices of the contractors that serve their organizations and report their findings to the Office of Management and Budget. It is only one of the dozens of functions OMB handles in administering the work of the federal government. Dan Chenix, executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, former chief of the Information Policy and Technology branch at OMB, and he's a contributor to OMB, an insider's guide. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What do you think people who work in government who should know this stuff don't know about OMB and all of the things that it does to administer the work of the government? Well, the, the, the book and the uh, chapters written in the book were written by a team of leaders that ran different offices in OMB and our experts having spent decades in the agency kind of understanding perspectives and explaining those perspectives both to people in government and to new leaders coming into government. And uh, three of the things that are important in terms of, of uh, key findings from the book are the, the fact that OMB really provides objective analytical capacity and institutional memory for White Houses and White House staffs of both parties. OMB is really a government in miniature. Every agency, every function of government is represented in one building uh, with a career staff of roughly 400 to 450 people and then a, a political staff that comes in uh, with each administration. Um, the breadth of that uh, reach really spans all aspects of policy, budgeting, and management. And importantly, if there is a change in administrations or even between terms of, a, of an administration, OMB plays a very important role in terms of continuity uh, for new leaders coming in uh, during the transition and thereafter. I, I think of all of the, everything you just outlined demonstrates the tremendous value of this organization. I think the most valuable thing that you just mentioned, Dan, is the institutional memory. Um, I have learned so much from people like you who were civil servants at OMB, people who have served as political appointees, administrations of both parties over the years who have served at OMB, so much from them. What's, how does that value propagate itself in the midst of a transition, as you say, whether it's from term one to term two of an administration or one administration to a different president? So especially in the latter scenario, uh, the OMB staff are really serving two different um, uh, governing, um, governing bodies. One is the outgoing administration in terms of finishing their agenda, helping them with, with options to 
to wrap up management initiatives, to understand sort of where to leave policy initiatives so they can be handed off. And the other is working with the transition team, the incoming team, and the new leaders after January 20th of a new administration. And in a second term scenario, there often are new leaders as well. So, so it's a similar process. Uh, and the, the staff really help explain and the continuity. There's many uh, initiatives that get carried over and this often doesn't get reported from one administration to another. A, a good example is the current president's management agenda, which takes a number of initiatives from the prior administration. And that administration in turn built on uh, things that were developed in the very first president's management agenda uh, that came under President Bush when I was still at OMB in 2002. What's the best way for that handoff to continue? What is the best way for somebody coming in, whether it's President Trump's second term or Vice President Biden is elected in, and, and takes office in January? What's the best way to continue the momentum in things like the PMA, IT modernization efforts that Suzette Ken undertook and others that a lot of people that look from the outside in say, this should continue regardless of the party. This isn't partisan stuff. This is just good government. How do we maintain that momentum, Dan? So two points. The only career staff really are looking at uh, objective analysis and how best to proceed in terms of developing policy options and developing management frameworks for government. Very quickly, uh, a new administration faces a, uh, the, the issuance of a budget. And especially if there's a change in administration, that administration comes in and, uh, and the February date for the budget is just two weeks after the inauguration of a new president. And so a new administration has very significant and rapid choices to make during the transition. And so the OMB career staff helps that administration uh, in that scenario uh, really uh, quickly move management and policy initiatives forward. And if new leaders come in in a second term scenario, a, a similar process occurs. It just occurs sort of on a more a normal time frame. There's been a debate over the 12 or 15 years that I've been following this stuff, Dan, that either one or the other of the M or the B is underemphasized or overemphasized at a particular time, and it ebbs and flows. What's your sense of that, and what is your sense of the way that a successful administration, you don't have to name which one you thought it was necessarily, or maybe it never existed, but what's the way to balance that to make sure that each of those functions inside OMB is healthy and maximizing its potential? Well, one of the things that the book takes care to do is to talk about both functions, because they really are mutually reinforcing. If you provide funding for an initiative, but you don't have management discipline, uh, and oversight on that initiative, uh, then uh, the execution can fail. Uh, similarly, if you really focus just on a management piece, but there's not an associated level of funding discipline and oversight working with Congress, um, that can uh, drive down the uh, attention to that initiative in terms of, of its importance. Uh, one other point that I, I'd emphasize is that the deputy director for management works along with the deputy director who really oversees much of the budget uh, operations in a typical OMB. And the DDM, the deputy for management, serves on the, on the uh, transition council, the agency transition director's council. So that person also plays a role in bringing forward uh, this momentum going, going uh, into the future. Um, the book that you're referring to, OM, the Office of Management Budget and Insider's Guides, available on the White House Transition Project website, Dan. What do you want people to take away from it? About 30 seconds left. So the OMB career staff are one of the finest groups of civil servants in the government. They're, they're often not um, discussed in the press, but they really do serve to protect the institutional capacity and memory of the White House on behalf of the American people. 
new leaders would do well to listen to them and learn from, from their knowledge and understanding of the programs that they're about to oversee. Dan Chen, a great insight as always. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, new family leave benefits for federal employees are coming soon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the new options include and the employees they don't apply to. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Government employees will soon have new benefits under the Federal Employee Paid Leave Act. Eligible employees will get 12 weeks paid leave after the birth or adoption of a new child or to care for a sick relative. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, thanks very much for coming on. How will this work and who's eligible for this new benefit? Well, this is really exciting. It goes into effect October 1. It's for any federal employee right now under Title V. So there are some exclusions but who has birth, adoption, or placement of a child. Unfortunately, it doesn't go back in time, meaning if you have your child on September 30th, it may not apply to you. Um, but it also works in tandem with FMLA leave. So if, in fact, federal folks have had to use a portion of their FMLA or unpaid leave any time during this calendar year, that time would also count towards the 12-week maximum allocation. What's great about this is federal employees can use this new parental leave um, within 12 months of the birth or placement or adoption of a child, and it entitles them for up to 12 weeks of paid leave. That's really great news. So you could stack this with uh, a spouse or another family member who has the same benefit, doesn't work for the government, and so you could do 12, and they could do a different 12, and you could have, that's like half a year uh, with a new adoptee or to take care of a family member, right? There are different combinations. And in fact, if your spouse or partner are, is a federal employee um, and qualifies for this leave as well, both parents would be entitled to that under this new regulation, which is really precedent sent it. I'm very excited to see this for the federal workforce. And I think it's monumental for the country at large. How's it different than what's available to people now? Well, right now, you know, employees are having to use a combination of their own paid leave. Sometimes if agencies offer something like a sick leave bank, they can tap into that. Um, there's also the potential of, of course, using unpaid leave. But that's really not very advantageous, especially for newer federal employees who may come in at junior ranks and um, may not be in the financial, you know, capability to be able to take care of their child for that long without pay. So this really does revolutionize and modernize some of the benefits that we've been talking about for quite a long while in the federal government. Anything else that employees should know about taking advantage of this? Is there a special process they have to go through or is it the same as putting in for other kinds of leave that they want to take? There is a requirement for employees who tap into this leave, no matter how much of it they use, that they stay on the rolls for at least 12 weeks after they use it. So even if you only were to use, let's say, three weeks out of the 12-week entitlement, there still is a 12-week requirement for you to stay on the rolls as an employee after that, unless there are some special circumstances that agency directors can waive. I want to shift gears, Mika. You've been tracking the way that the pandemic has changed the workforce, the way they work, the places that they work, and the way that leaders and managers lead and manage. What are you seeing? What do you think are the biggest changes that will stick after whatever becomes the new normal becomes the new normal? 
it almost seems like we are the new normal now, right, Francis? I mean, I'm really encouraged to see some of the innovations and modernization that we've been speaking about for so long, really in this test-fed environment. So from performance management tactics that we've been touting, meaning regular check-ins, being very deliberate, making sure you're being very clear and succinct with feedback, those things are happening in this virtual environment by very nature of the way that we're having to work together because we don't have that in-person face time that often very many managers were relying on. We're also seeing agencies very speedily um, expand to the cloud and other modernization um, efforts with technology. When you're thinking about embracing a workforce with five generations of federal workers and different competency levels, different um, levels of comfort with certain technologies, this is really rapid fire. And especially for you know, an organization as large as the nation's largest employers that's very top heavy with um, sort of an aging workforce, this is really refreshing to see because agencies are having to get this right, both for the customers, but also internally considering the employee experience and making sure that their employees are staying connected and have the information that they need and make sure that they're supported in the workplace. So um, I'm actually very encouraged by some of the creativity and innovation that I'm seeing all across the federal government right now in this environment. Are leaders seeing any differences in the way that they're rolling out training and upskilling or is it too early to tell yet, do you think, Mika? Oh, no, I think they're absolutely doing or uh, seeing these kinds of changes. In fact, you know, when you're thinking about current onboarding mechanisms and how you're going to be able to integrate new employees who have never been a part of the workforce before and integrate them well into this culture, it's really amazing some of the creative solutions that we're seeing. Um, even in terms of recruitment, look at the U.S. Army with what they're doing with their virtual hiring events and continuing the recruitment process overall. And then agencies that are able to actually bring in on board and get employees settled into this virtual environment, sometimes using their own devices, sometimes using agency equipment. Um, I think also there's a, a high potential. In fact, there was a hearing just the end of last July um, on telework savings across the federal government. What we might expect to see as agencies embrace this way of working differently. Do I think it's gonna stay the exact way? No, it can't. Um, but I think there may be a lot more options and ways to track incentives and also um, giving options to the to the workforce as well and, and when they have to be at a workplace or a facility versus when they don't have to and what the cost savings and benefits could be both, both for the people and for the taxpayer. Mika Cross, great to have you on as always. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francis. Up next, securing the next generation of technology from the bad guys. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how emerging technologies could become emerging threats. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Agencies across government are using artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies to respond to the pandemic and meet other missions. But those technologies could turn into vulnerabilities themselves. Chris Kemiski is the CEO of Kemiski Strategic Solutions, former acting undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, it's great to see you again. What are you looking at and what are other organizations tracking? Which technologies specifically as potential vulnerabilities? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, essentially, what uh, DHS has done of late is take a look at emerging threats 
on the landscape as it relates to technology. And as a result of that, they've identified six or seven categories that uh, deserve further study uh, and focus. Uh, AI is one of them, as you mentioned, uh, also looking at uh, unmanned aerial systems, 3D printing, uh, biogenetics, or just some of the areas where uh, the Homeland Security Advisory Council uh, is really taking a deep dive as to what these emerging threats mean to the homeland. What are the potential threats? Is it just uh, the bad guys hacking into these things, making them do things they're not supposed to do? Or is it more complicated, more complex, and more severe than that? Well, as, as you would expect, there's some real benefits of using things like AI and machine learning uh, to you know, create better efficiencies and, and better analytical capability, predictive technologies in government. But at the same time, your adversaries are using the same kinds of strategies. And so with AI, we're uh, uh, the UAS is really a, a euphemism for drone technologies in many cases. Uh, it's you know looking at what the Secret Service or uh, CBP at the border are contending with as it relates to the threat of uh, drones being more prolific and also uh, inexpensive for those adversaries to use. What kinds of things are they finding? What are the potential use cases for the bad guys that we need to think about defending against? Well, in each category, there are these things that they've identified as potential threats. Uh, for AI, it's really this ability to distort uh, uh, you know, the reality of uh, what the, the public is seeing uh, through things like deep fake uh, technology, which allows you to morph uh, individuals to recreate images and videos uh, to make it look like somebody is saying something different than perhaps what they said uh, to stoke fear and then use that through a social media uh, campaign, which we saw a little bit of in 2016. Uh, for UAS, it's a payload delivery, uh, the ability to deliver explosives or uh, other you know, harmful uh, payloads uh, to uh, incidents where there are large crowds. Uh, 3D printing, it's the ability to uh, build metal objects, uh, guns, weapons uh, through the use of 3D. And then for uh, things like genetic uh, mutation, uh, it's that biogenetic arena uh, that they're concerned about with the permutations to livestock, uh, and also to uh, harm uh, humans as a result of those changes. Each of these categories that you describe, Chris, sounds to me like it's a separate and discrete silo almost. You know, I don't know that I can think of much connection between uh, biometric mutation and 3D printing. Mm -hmm. Is there, though, an overarching framework of strategic thought to apply that works for all of these things as you try to think about how to neutralize these potential threats? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what the government is trying to do is assemble uh, this threat landscape as it emerges in the future and really take a look at the things that are most likely to be harmful uh, to the American public and things that they need to counter. And so these were six categories that uh, the HSAC identified initially. And what you're seeing is that they're coming out with uh, plans and recommendations over a three to seven year horizon uh, so that they can start to look at these individually and say, okay, for you know, unmanned aerial systems, as they become much more sophisticated, what does that mean for large gatherings in the U.S.? And what kinds of countermeasures would have to be developed? I want to talk about the uh, recommendations in a moment, but it sounds to me like the what you're talking about, about the, the examining the threat landscape is a textbook example of a use case for the risk management framework that your former colleague at DHS, Rafael Boris, instituted. Am I on the right track? Very much so, and you're seeing that work uh, continue through the National Risk Management Center uh, in the cyber agency at DHS uh, and across the components. It's really this notion of, you know, what is the risk to the American people and then prioritizing that. Uh, because if you look at the national risk uh, assessments, you know, they can have as many as 55 major categories. 
Uh, but you really do need to prioritize that. And I think that's what Bob Pulaski and the folks at CISA are trying to do now, is take that, that initial work from a, a series of years ago and then really apply it in the real world today. Among the categories that you talked about, you didn't mention cyber, which is an issue you and I have talked about many times. Is it because that's attached to so many of these other things through various uh, uh, methods, or is there something else there? No, I think you're right. It's really embedded. I think that really when uh, the people at DHS and the federal agencies think about threat, uh, they see that cyber is really ingrained across all of those uh, different horizons. So you really do see that as kind of a baseline consideration in just about every technology project now. All right, uh, recommendations in the couple of minutes that we have left, Chris. What are you seeing as far as the way that DHS should take action? And what's the role potentially for industry to help the agency and other agencies uh, deal with these emerging threats when they're using these technologies? Well, I think you highlight a good point because, uh, you know, the Department of Defense through the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center is really out in front in having a system of examination and analysis. Uh, the federal civilian agencies are not quite as far down that track. So uh, one of the recommendations is for DHS and others to really start to centralize that thinking and have a conversation that will be inclusive of their different mission sets. Uh, so that's one area that I think is important for them to, to focus on. And certainly the counter drone technologies, whether it's uh, signal jamming, uh, sensor technologies, or through the FAA Authorization Act of 2018, it gives DHS the ability to use kinetic uh, involvement to try and take some of these uh, drones and other uh, UASs out of the sky. And so that's going to be a much more complicated uh, kind of discussion going forward. Chris, thanks very much as always. Great to have you on this program. Thanks, Randy. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.